Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Business Innovation with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run business is run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, 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 and if you want to run with the Game Changers, I promise you're in the right place for the next 57 minutes with us live or listen on demand later. Tell someone. We're going to have a great conversation. The buzz today is winner. I like that. I'm waiting for little ka-ching noises in the background, but we don't have sound effects. What am I talking about? Sales is evolving with buyers more sophisticated and better informed. Everyone listening is a consumer of something as well as perhaps a manufacturer, a service provider, and the buying environment has dropped dramatically changed from ever before. So the question on the table today is, how do today's top sales winners separate themselves from the pack, or if you prefer the word, separate themselves from the herd? There are so many of them. How do they distinguish themselves and climb to the pinnacle of sales success? So here, let me give you a little bit of research. By studying more than 700 major B2B, that's business-to-business purchases from buyers representing $3.1 billion in annual purchasing power, Rain Group discovered that solution, consultative, and relationship selling approaches are no longer sufficient to win the sale. That may come as a shock to a lot of you listening or people you're going to tell about the show, but sit down. We're going to help you out with it. Even sa- and Here's a reality check. Even savvy buyers still need people, human beings, to share ideas with them and help them think through their purchase options. So the big question now is, is your sales team up to speed yet? Do they get it? Do they know what has changed, and are they prepared and equipped. Let's introduce our panel. First up is Mike Schultz, RAIN Group, that's R-A-I-N, all caps, RAIN Group co-president, the co-author of RAIN Making Conversations and Insight Selling. And Mike sent me the following quote, the road to success is always under repair. It's close to a quote that has somebody's name on it, but this version is anonymous. Mike Schultz, welcome. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Bonnie. Delighted. So talk to me. How'd you pick this quote, and what does this have to do with our topic of B2B sales winners? Well, uh, it, it's interesting. You could have fallen asleep in the 1980s if you were in sales after having read, say, spin selling, conceptual solution selling, all the, the, the great sales books of the day. You could have woken up 25 years later, gotten mm-hmm. back to your desk, sold the exact same way, and succeeded. But about 10 years ago, we at Rain Group started getting calls, not just, hey, we need help teaching people how to sell, but we actually think we have people that know how to sell, but what we used to do is, it actually isn't even working anymore, and we don't know why. And so what we found in the research was that selling has actually changed more in the last 10 years than it had in the previous 40. And what got you here in terms of success won't get you there. Now, the big thing we found, and I'm going to get to all the details uh, as the uh, program goes along, was that the sales mm-hmm. winners, the ones that got the business, they didn't just sell differently. They sold radically differently from the second-place finishers. And a lot of the second-place finishers, because we talked to sellers and buyers as well as uh, studying those 700 B2B purchases, we learned that they actually used to be really successful. So why the quote? Because even if you've had success in the past in selling, you can't rest on your laurels. And we've been finding that seller after seller, even if they didn't think it was broke, they still have some fixing to do. And so if they want to take the road to success in sales, it's under repair right now, or it should be. 
Thank you, Mike. Great introduction, and I appreciate all the nuances you shared. My question to you is when you said they have to do it radically different. If we're talking about somebody who's been in sales, I put a big quote around that with a capital S, and they've been doing it for 20, 30, 40 years, how much is their mindset going to be able to grasp the idea of what you shared radically? Do they know what radical is? Are they prepared to leave the comfort zone, even if it's the failure zone of what they've been doing all along because it no longer works? Any quick insights? Uh, yeah, sure. So let me ask you a question. How many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? Oh, my goodness. Well, I know they're going to talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. So it must be at least 100. Uh, well, you know what? Let's go all the way back to the number one. It only takes one psychologist to change the light bulb, but the light bulb has to want to change. Ah, uh, so thank you. I missed that one. If you're years old and you're figuring it out, mm. or if you're 55 mm. years old and you're figuring it out, if you're still in the game and you're willing to learn and you're driving towards success and your mind is open, you can figure it out. If you think you know everything and you're going to do it the way that you're going to do it and nobody's going to tell you how, then you can't. But it really stems from the person themselves. Thank you. That was one of a long list of historical light bulb jokes, and I fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. Thank you. And I should have known that because I have an old degree in psychology that I never used, but I should have remembered that one. Mike, you have educated me. Thank you very much. Let's turn to our second panelist. I'm pleased to welcome Gord Smith. He's vice president of global marketing at Hitachi Solutions, and Gord sent me a quote from Winston Churchill. Here's the quote. Success is stumbling from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. Gord Smith, welcome. How are you today? Good. How are you today, Bonnie? I'm okay. Talk to me. Interesting quote. How did Churchill get on this show with you? Yeah, well, it, it happened basically from my last couple of years of experience. I spent the last two years creating a marketing function from scratch at Hitachi, largely through resources from acquisitions. And uh, like any good kind of uh, business person, I had a series of business grads and went through a rigorous kind of planning process, you know, planned our, our buyer segmentation, planned our personas, planned our buying journeys, looked at how to get data, what do we need from a technology, what content do we need, and we put that all together into a great plan. And I can say unequivocally that nothing went as planned. Our data uh-huh. was, we went through it, it you know, was from coming from different sources, wasn't quite there. Our content had response rates that were lower than we expected. Ooh. You know, some cases it worked, some cases it didn't. Our technology, whenever we changed the technology, it would work, but it would break three other things. So mm. I arrived at this quote because um, I think that's more the norm. The world is changing so fast. People um, are looking for different type of content. And there are no silver bullets, right? So success is really about iterating, being agile, innovating, and doing it fast and doing it with a smile on your face. And if you can get 1%, 2% better in your response rate, slowly you know, increase your conversion, get better results in terms of marketing generated revenue, that's what success looks like, and it comes in small incremental bites. Thank you, Gord. Reminds me of a quote we hear often on many of our, our Game Changers radio shows, fail fast and fail often. Do you agree with that in this case? Oh, absolutely. And I think you, you need to celebrate your failures, right? When something doesn't work and uh, you know, you, you know, there's a tendency to hang your head down, you should actually, uh, in some respects, celebrate because you're one step closer to success. 
I love it. That's great motivation. Great motivation and encouragement. Thank you so much, Gordon. Welcome to the show. And let's bring on my third panelist. It's Mark Roberge. I'll spell that R-O-B-E-R-G-E. He's the HubSpot Chief Revenue Officer for Sales Products. He's the author of the Sales Acceleration Formula. And here is a quote from William Edwards Deming. And the quote is, in God we trust, all others bring data. Mark Roberge, welcome. How are you today? I'm great, Bonnie. Thanks for uh, having me. Thanks for joining us. Talk to me about your quote. Interesting selection. Yeah, it's one we put up in the early days of HubSpot. Kind of had a good joke about it, but it truly represented our culture and how we ran the business. Um, you know, we the early founding team and, and, and executives here, we're all kind of MIT guys. And it was kind of funny that that's the way you drove change was you showed up with a beautiful pie chart or bar chart showing some sort of insight within the company itself. And uh, it truly is how we ran the business from or run the business even from um, you know, how we think about customer success, how we think about um, product usage and managing our product team, uh, specifically with me and building out sales was a huge driver in the, within the data. And even with today's topic and how we, how we uh, you know, work with our customers and drive the conversation with them. So, you know, as a specific example with me in, in scaling out sales, I, I really hadn't done sales before HubSpot, you know, been here coming on eight years now. And and uh, prior to this was an entrepreneur, was an engineer, wrote code, um, studied mechanical engineering undergrad, and took a very particular approach to scaling the sales team. You know, I, I really defined a mission for myself as predictable, scalable revenue growth. And I had four mantras that I wanted to drive around, which was, number one, um, hire people in a very predictable way successfully, train them in a predictable way. Three, provide them with the same quality and quantitative leads every single month. And four, hold them accountable to the same sales process. And, you know, through that engineering lens, really relied on the data and, and process to, to kind of reinforce those four attributes. Um, so, you know, and that doesn't, that doesn't restrict itself to scale and sales. It really drove how we thought about interacting with customers as well. You know, to Mike's points with inside selling, um, you know, the more that we could lean into the data and demonstrate new ways of thinking with that data and, and help set expectations properly around the transformation and marketing that we were trying to push upon them, uh, the more successful we were. Thank you, Mark. Great intro, and I appreciate the explanation of the quote. I have a question for you. Should we alter that quote a little bit to say, in God we trust, all others bring big data? <laughs> if you want to be within the hype of uh, today's big memes, possibly. Um, but uh, I don't know. We, you know. I think big data is, uh, I think more people shrug their shoulders around big data these days than, than uh, smile with success. Um, so I think we'll restrict it to data. <laughs> okay, that's fine. And we, somebody would have to call Deming and say, we changed your quote, and I, I don't want anyone <laughs> to do that. So I'll have to leave that to you, and you're not going to do it. So there we are. Thank you, Mark. I'm going to circle back to Mike Schultz at Rain Group, and I'm going to ask you to just tell me in two sentences what Rain Group does, and then I'm going to ask you, Mike, to tell me what's in your cup today. What are you drinking right now, or what do you plan to drink after the show? Talk to me. So Rain Group, uh, at Rain Group, we unleash sales potential. Uh, we're a pure play in helping people sell better, and we help companies uh, set up sales so it works properly through our consulting offerings. And we spend most of our time all around the world uh, with uh, our home office here in uh, lovely Framingham, Massachusetts, just west of Boston, and through our five international offices. Thank and in you. terms of what's in my cup, uh, mm -hmm. going back to the, uh, the international offices there, a few months ago, I actually opened our office in Johannesburg, South Africa. And there was one day, of course, I'm American and I want my Starbucks, but I couldn't get my coffee. So I ended up having a Scarlet Rooibos. 
And I'd say it was tea, but I've since been corrected that it's not tea. It's actually an herbal infusion, and it's only grown in one place in the world, and that's in South Africa, which I thought was pretty cool. And I liked it, so I ordered it, and I have it here on my desk, and it is currently in my cup. Wow, and you can get it on Amazon. It's called Etazo makes it. Tazo Scarlet Citrus Roibos. I'll spell that R O O I B O S herbal infusion. You can get it all over the place. Thank you. That's a new drink for us. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh Gord, up for yep. you and tell me a little bit about what Hitachi Solutions does and tell me what you're drinking. Yeah, sure. Hitachi Solutions is a division of the Hitachi family, and we're primarily a consulting and systems integration firm uh, operating globally with uh, about 10 offices in India, Canada, Europe, and, uh, and obviously United States. Um, I'd have to say that my what's in my cup is in transition. I do have a boring coffee in my uh, cup right now. Oh, but, no. Uh, within, well, I know, but within 48 hours, I'm going to have either a Mai Tai or a blue Hawaiian because I'm uh, very close to a, a well-deserved vacation on the beach in Maui. So uh, I'm really looking forward to that. How nice. Do you have a special kind of rum that goes in your Mai Tai? I know it has curacao and lime lime juice, uh, but is there any special kind of rum that Gordon Smith I'm not prefers? picky. Uh, I, I'm not <laughs> picky on that. <laughs> any kind okay. of rum will do. We'll just order up a Mai Tai for you, and I hope you enjoy your vacation, but you're mine for the next, uh, let's see, 55 minutes or so. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. You. Mark Roberge, well, I can't ask you to top those, but they sure sound interesting. What are you drinking now or later? And do you want the HubSpot intro, Bonnie, too? Sorry. Yes, please. Of course. Okay. I thought there was a con- um So, yeah, just um, so HubSpot uh, was based on a thesis we had done at MIT eight years ago about, about today's subject, basically, uh, on how buying behaviors have changed due to the Internet. They're far more empowered. They have more data at their fingertips, and they typically engage with organizations much deeper on the buying journey. So we set out to build uh, first marketing and eventually sales software to support organizations through their transition. Um, so we've got, you know, a CRM. Uh, we have uh, lead nurturing product. We have a, a content management system. We have a blog. We have SEO tools, et cetera, to help organizations make this transition and start getting a lot more inbound leads to their organization. As for my cup, um, I, it's not right now, but possibly later this evening at one of the dinners we have, I'll be drinking a pint of Guinness. Um, it's been my beer choice for many years. And the funny story, uh, my best Guinness story was I was excited three years ago when we decided to open up our first international office in Dublin. And I had the good luxury of traveling there with our managing director that we, um, uh, that we selected to, to open the office to just the two of us flying out there to, to open it up. And my first taxi ride, I got in, met a great Irish guy, and uh, told him that I was so excited about this trip because it made my first taste of Guinness in Dublin. Mm. And his first words were, you couldn't pay me. You couldn't pay me to drink a Guinness. <laughs> Whoa! And I said, "Are you kidding me?" I flew all this way. And he's like, "What? What kind of beer do you drink?" He said, "Budweiser." <laughs> oh my god! So I was That's an OMG. That, uh, I flew all, all the way across the pond only to find a Budweiser drinker, um, which was uh, left a, a poor taste in my mouth initially. But uh, when I finally did get a pint of Guinness over there, it was worth it. I'm glad. That's a good story. Thank you so much, Mark. Guess what? We're going to take a break. Our topic today is insight selling, what B2B sales winners do differently. We've already had a great introduction from my three panelists today, Mike Schultz at Rain Group, Gord Smith at Hitachi Solutions, and Mark Roberge at 
HubSpot. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. We're going to take a break for about 90 seconds or so. When we come back, I'm going to give the honors to Mike Schultz to kick off the roundtable. He and I are going to have a brief discussion during the break on what topic we're going to come back with. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. You're listening to Business Innovation with Game Changers. We'll be right back. Brad out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Business has never been more complex than in today's networked economy. To thrive, companies must adapt and innovate. They must harness the wealth of information now available to enable smarter decision-making. They must enable effective collaboration among employees and with their customers and suppliers. They must optimally deploy enterprise resources, and they must make this simple. Join our experts as they discuss how your business leaders can drive innovation that positions your company for continued success. Business Innovation with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. listening to Business Innovation with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show using Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Business Innovation with Game Changers. Are ready to go with our roundtable discussion. Mike Schultz at Rain Group, you're up first. Mike, I mentioned in my opening to the show that Rain Group's What Sales Winners Do Differently research studied over 700 major purchases from buyers who represented $3.1 billion in annual purchasing power. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that study? I'd like to put a little meat on the bones. Go ahead, Mike. Uh, sure. So uh, the study uh, we've been doing uh, benchmark research uh, here at Rain Group, uh, probably one major report a year for 10 years. There was a bit of a craze maybe four or five years ago uh, when some research came out, and there were a couple of articles in the Harvard Business Review. One of them was, uh, in a downturn, if you want to sell, provoke your customers, and another one was literally titled, The End of Solution Sales. Uh, now, you, you have the Harvard Business Review publishing uh, an article with the title, The End of Solution Sales. That's not just a, hey, here's another vo- a viewpoint on a, on a way to sell. That literally crushed the mental models of millions of sellers uh, in the United States and around the world. Because if it was true, everyone had to change everything. Now, we knew that selling wasn't working uh, as well as it had in the past if you did the same things. But we had the question, is it dead? Is it the end of solution sales? They also published an article uh, that was um, called Selling is Not About Relationships. So is relationship and solution selling, are they, are they gone? So we decided to do this study, uh, and we mm-hmm. actually found very different things uh, than the Harvard Business Review and the researchers that uh, had shared that. And so uh, I was kind of excited when I, I've done lots of research and it's come up with nothing, but this one actually showed that, you know, Harvard Business Review didn't get it right on this one, uh, and the people that were suggesting that you should throw out everything you know are actually dead wrong. However, if you just did what you used to do, that wouldn't get you to the win. You needed to do it, as they say, it's necessary but not sufficient, but they needed to do more and other things. 
Thank you, Mike. Very, very interesting. How did it feel going up against, I'll use that term loosely, up against the Harvard Business Review? Were there any ramifications when your study came out? Anybody knock on your door and say, what? Are you kidding me? We're the Harvard uh, Business Review. Yeah, a million people knocked on our door and said, what? Are you kidding me? Because they had invested mm-hmm. uh, some millions, if not tens of millions, in changing their whole sales force. Uh, and, it's kind of, and it's kind of funny because we would get calls from these companies saying that we dumped uh, we dumped uh, these sort of consultative and solution concepts, uh, and our clients and customers are calling us uh, screaming because they don't like how they're being talked to and treated. So that was kind of interested. Uh, this sort of created this shakeup in the industry. Uh, so, so yeah, we we got a lot of people saying, yeah, I don't think so, but you know, our data showed what the data showed. We didn't set out to support a particular viewpoint. I just wanted to know what was happening. I mean, whatever's mm-hmm. happening, whatever's working in the business where we are is to help people sell. I just want to know what that is so we can help. We just happen to find out some, some novel things. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you just real quickly, uh, yeah. one of the things that we found in terms of that solution and relationship sales, if you just did those and you didn't do the other things, you lost. You didn't come in first place. The thing is, is that 30 years ago, take, you know, solution and consultative selling, that was kind of a trend. You line up 100 sellers and maybe five guys were doing it. But now I could give a speech in front of a 5,000-person audience and say, who hasn't heard of consultative or solution selling? Well, everyone has. And to an extent, uh, people are doing it. Now, we actually found the winners are doing it better than the others. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is that you don't throw it out. If you did throw it out, if you didn't do those things, then you didn't actually end up in the first or second place left. You were actually kicked out when the buyer was considering four or five sellers. If they say, I didn't like them, or they didn't understand when I was, what, what I needed and connected it to the, the, the product or service as a solution, then I completely dismissed them earlier. So you had to do it. You just had to do more. Mm, thank you very much, Mike. Gord Smith, let's talk to you. Yes, what do you think about what, what, what Mike just shared? Go ahead. Yeah, I had a comment and a question for Mike, actually. Um, Please. In, in my travels, I've, I've, I, I agree with what you're saying, and there's a lot of um, sort of legacy thinking around solution and relationship selling. And a lot of the, the challenge is with the actual sales leaders and organizations themselves. They grew up in the 80s and 90s, and that worked, and that's all they know. How do you go about creating a change imperative or uh, a sense of urgency around, you know, the new way to sell? Uh, well, uh, the first thing is, is that you have to change their minds. You have to disrupt their thinking. Mm-hmm. And you know what? If they've been trained in the 80s and 90s and they're going to do it the way that they're going to do it, then somewhere, someone up in leadership should uh, tell them to go hit the pike because it's not working anymore. Hey, you know what? In the 80s and in the 90s, I was using ACT as my CRM, and I like it right on my desktop without without using it as software as a service and without, without logging into the, the, the Internet. So I learned it that mm-hmm. way, so that's how we're going to do it. Well, I bet Mark Roberge has a, a thing or two to tell us about how, you know, if you're using a desktop CRM system that's not connected to marketing and not connected to all of your publishing and not providing the data to salespeople that they need to sell, it's probably time to do something else. So you have to disrupt their thinking, and and you have to find those light, light bulbs that are open to change. If they're not open to change, as as a, you know, if you're going to be the change leader, then go find someone that is. But you know, if they're not open to that change, then their sales are going to suffer, Out. and they deserve to, you know, they deserve to be shown the door. Out, Mark Robert, you have been summoned by Mike. Talk to us. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, Mike is right. You know, so many buyers today have already been down some portions of their education journey before they actually engage in the organization. And I think what's, what's uh, to his point, what's sad is if we were to go out and survey how a lot of these organizations are going to market, they probably have a sales team cold calling good fit prospects. And I would bet that a decent percentage of the organizations they're cold calling have actually visited the company's website in the last month or two. They've read blog articles. They've you know, possibly even been on social media chatting about some of the value props that this particular company does. And the sales, or, the sales rep has no visibility into that. And that's just a, a lost opportunity today to connect with sort of these these the insights that the, the buyers are actually giving to us through the behaviors online and how the salespeople can understand those and better personalize the discussion toward those insights. Thank you. Mike, you want to come back with anything for Mark before I move on? Uh, no, I think we can, we can keep on going. Okay, thank you very much. I'm looking at Gord Smith's notes you sent me before the show, Gordon, and I'm going to start with your first comment here. You say clients want provocative and insightful interactions, and that goes back to what I said in my opening, that even savvy buyers still need real people to share ideas and help them think through their purchase options. And then you add, Gord, start with a value hypothesis and tell a relevant story to appeal to the client's emotions. I don't think we mentioned the word emotions in our conversation yet. So, Gord, why don't you expand this for us, please? Yeah, sure. Maybe I'll give you kind of a buyer's perspective because I'm on yeah. the buying side quite a bit and also sure. a seller's perspective from my sales management days. So um, one of the areas that I get a lot of folks um, trying to sell me things is in the area of data, whether it be a sales intelligence tool or whether it be buy, the, buy this marketing list or, you know, um, here's some resources to create great marketing lists. And I, I sit and I listen to their presentations and I've come to the conclusion that I could close my eyes and just mm-hmm. sit there and listen, and nine out of ten presentations would have the very same thing. They often open with, you know, we are global, you know, we work in your industry, we've done work at your competitors, you know, um, here's the services that we offer, and it's all about them and nothing about me. And um, so I listen to these things, and, I, and it doesn't resonate, and I don't get, get interested. What I'm looking for on the buying side is we worked with VP of Marketing at Company X. They had these problems. This is how we addressed them. These are the results. And I don't really – it doesn't impact me to hear about all the we messaging. I want to hear about what they can do for me. I guess on the, on the sales side, um, I had a really interesting situation. I had a sales rep that was working for me, and we got very close to closing a deal, and he asked me to fly in to meet with the CEO. And this was a very well-prepared sales rep. He had you know, a deck prepared. He had everything uh, ready to go, and we had the CFO, the CEO. We had a, the whole C-suite in the room. So we walk into the meeting. We have our stack of slides, and the CEO says, uh, hi, nice to meet you, Gord. Um, we don't want to see any slides. Here's what I want. Uh. You got 10 minutes to tell me what are the major risks we're going to uh, face on this project and exactly how you're going to mitigate them. Mm. And um, so that, that, that's sort of a bit of a wrench. But we went through and described the major risks by having the right content, the right knowledge, but more importantly, by telling them stories about our clients. 
at this client, they had this problem, they were in this situation, this was their picture of pain, and this is how we addressed it. So that's how I arrived at the conclusion around, you know, um, clients want to hear stories, they want to know what your value is and have a hypothesis of how you're going to help them, just like when I buy data, I want to know how, a client, how this data organization is going to help me, and then um, move away from what I would call pedestrian messaging that's exactly the same as what everyone else is saying. Get rid of the boilerplate. Gord, has this happened to you again since this first wrench, as you called it? Um, yeah, you know, it, it's actually happening all the time. Um, uh-huh, I so, had a feeling. <laughs> so I had, I had uh, a another, feeling, yep. I had another uh, situation. I had a, an executive call me from a software company saying, hey, Gord, guess what? We're looking at a new CRM system. You know, we, we know you guys. Why don't you come out and have a discussion with us? And this, this individual was a COO. He had sales reporting to him, and he had uh, marketing reporting to him. So I had a sales rep. I sent him out. And um, it was, uh, you know, kind of a one-hour introductory meeting, as I had understood. And so when my sales rep arrived, I wasn't there. Uh, the COO opened the meeting with, um, I just watched 17 videos online about the products that you represent. I know everything that they do. I don't want to hear about where you've done work or, you know, what you've done. I have three questions, and they relate specifically to my requirements, one, two, three. And they were things that were germane to their industry, like how do you, how do you handle subscription accounting, how do you handle revenue recognition. But that's the kind of level of pre-call research that I've seen in some instances with very, very senior people. And it throws a wrench in things. Luckily, I had a very experienced salesperson who had grown up on the consulting side, had deep experience with the product, and he could handle those questions. Mm -hmm. But I would say the majority of my sellers would have fell flat on their face in a meeting like that, and he had an audience, you know, with the rest of his peers at that company. Wow. I'm going to suggest improv training. It's great for being able to jump in in the moment and do something creative with tremendous confidence. But I digress. And I cough. Excuse me, Mark Robert, let's get you in on this conversation. What do you see? Sure. You know, I really like Gord's statements here. I'll add one element of sort of a consultative selling piece in the beginning of the framework that he opened up with. So I can also look at this from the perspective of a buyer as well as a perspective of managing the sales team here. Um, You know, as a buyer, it continues to frustrate me how many – salespeople approach me and and do a show up and throw up in quotes approach. (laughs) You know, I don't like really solution selling. I don't like relationship selling. I don't like sales processes where reps are, are, you know, rushing to get their elevator pitch and their PowerPoint deck Mm -hmm. in to kind of run through the motions. I do like consultative selling. I do like uh, insight selling. I do like aspects of the challenger sale and aspects of provocative selling. And the framework that I like here is, Um, Sure, I do want to hear about stories of other VPs. That's important. But I really like it when a salesperson can take just five or ten minutes up front to understand where my head is at. You know, really, like, for an example, I was approached by uh, a a company that sells compensation software for sales compensation. And they were very quick just to rush into what their product does and tell me stories about what other uh, companies were using it and how they were using it. But they didn't take the time to understand where we were at. You know, what was our compensation plan like? Were we, uh, were we going to change it in the short term? What were some of the things I liked about it? What were some of the struggles around it? How were we tracking it? How does finance reconcile it every single month? If they just took the five or ten minutes up front to understand those aspects, they could have personalized that story 
you know, far better to my specific needs. And that, that's kind of the framework that I like to buy within. It's also the framework that I like, you know, salespeople to follow is to take that consultative style up front to understand where this prospect's head is at. And if you understand that they have challenges or goals or pains or opportunities in front of them um, that they are prioritizing, top prioritizing right now, and we do that well, then you have an, hopefully an easy sale here. And all you need to do is tell that story and just demonstrate the features or the stories or the case studies that best align with that particular desire. If you don't, if you have a prospect on the table that feels like their priorities are somewhere else, somewhere else where you don't solve, then you either agree with them and walk away or refer them to one of your buddies who can help them or disagree and try to provoke them that they're focused on the wrong thing. And that's where I think, you know, uh, the challenger sale, provocative selling, even some aspects of insight selling obviously can be used in both, uh, both angles. Um, but at least you know what game you're, you're playing. And as I look across our best salespeople out there, the show up and throw ups, um, they close some deals, but they're not the top performers. It's those folks that really take the time to understand the unique needs of that prospect and know which game they're playing and personalize the sales process accordingly that really win. Thank you, Mark. Sounds like they need to listen, ask the right questions, and then listen, listen, listen before they open their mouth about what they're planning to do. Very, very interesting. Mike Schultz, any comments on what Mark and Gorgia shared before I move on to another topic? Mike? Uh, yes. No matter how someone likes to buy, at the end of any, pur- end of any purchase, you still need to satisfy the same three basic criteria. One is the buyer has to say, and think of it from the buyer's perspective, I want that or I need that. The second thing that they need, and this is very much to Gord's story, is I believe it'll work. So that's a a risk kind of thing. I want Mm -hmm. it and I believe it'll work. And the third thing is, is that this company is the best choice. So as we say, resonate, I want differentiate best choice and substantiate, I believe. Now, the thing is, is that getting there, what we found is that all the different buyers have different ways that they like to get there. So I know to Mark's story, he doesn't like the, the PowerPoint uh, show up and throw up, uh, take 10, 15 minutes, listen to me, understand where I am, and then you can customize the story. I know when we've interviewed some buyers to say, if you want to come pitch me an idea, I don't want to sit there for, for 10 or 15 minutes telling you all about me. If you're here, you get 10 or 15 minutes to tell you what you got, and then maybe we'll, we'll transition it. So, but we also found a lot of buyers like to buy like Mark. So the thing is, is that all of these methods, the thing about a method, is it's an approach, but you know, it, it simplifies reality, but it also retains validity. Now, what happens is, is that people just try to simplify reality and say, sell like this. But in reality, it's actually a toolkit. All of these different kinds of sales approaches and methods, they're things that you can use situationally to help you succeed. Now, here's one of the things that we teach that you should do, and we don't say, you know, use it when you can, but before you have a meeting, a quick email out to someone to say, looking forward to meeting you on the 14th. Uh, I know that a lot, of, a lot of people in your position are sold to all the time. When we have our meeting, the agenda is to discuss these things. But is there anything that you like or don't like about how the conversations go uh, when you have them? A lot of them will say, I've never gotten that question, but I would prefer you to do it like this. I'm sure Mark would take two minutes. If he's going to take a half an hour to meet with someone, he'd take two minutes to say, don't show up and throw up, listen to me for a little bit, etc., etc. That goes a huge way of establishing, you, know, you still have to get to the end point, but the how. And then 
one other point uh, to Gord's point about risk. Uh, In the research, uh, we found that there's a huge focus on buyers being worried that the thing that they buy won't work. They won't get the end outcome. So if you read 100 articles, very 100 articles you see about sell the ROI, sell the investment case, sell the, uh, you know, sell the, um, you know, the ability to achieve something. Well, uh, you, you'll, you'll find 100 articles about that. You'll find two articles about uh, mitigating risk. And yet that's the CEO says, I don't want to hear about your thing. I already saw it. Tell me why it's going to work. So in the research, we found a much higher focus from the buyer side of being wary uh, and not necessarily risk averse. But the, the, um, the hurdle that sellers need to jump to build trust, and not just build trust, hey, I can you know, hold on to your wallet and watch your kids and I won't lie to you, uh, but mm-hmm. the trust of competence and reliability and the ability to actually create the outcome that you promise. Thank you, Mike. All good points. I'm ready to move on with a, a slightly different twist on this. You talked about, Mike, you talked about emailing in advance and setting up the fact that you want to hear what they want to do, what they want to accomplish, what's on their mind, and you're probably going to shock some people, as you said. I want to look at some of Mark Roberge's notes, Aaron. Mark, let's talk about social selling. You say social selling is an opportunity for salespeople to position themselves as thought leaders in their industry and with their prospects. And then you say there's a lot of hype to social selling. However, the real opportunity is for salespeople to decrease their cold calling time, and who wouldn't want to do that, and replace it with social media participation, find the blogs, the LinkedIn groups, the tweets that your prospects follow. How much time should a salesperson to differentiate themselves from the pack, how much time should they spend on social investigation and social selling, Mark? Yeah, it's highly circumstantial to the business and the buyer behavior mm-hmm. and who you're selling to. Um, I think social selling has been an interesting term, but a bit overhyped, and I think it's been misunderstood by the industry. A lot of people, I think, position it as, hey, I can stop cold calling and just start direct messaging people on Twitter uh, to buy my software, and that's farthest from the truth. Um, mm-hmm. You know, to be quite frank, I mean, in a lot of industries, decision makers don't spend a lot of time out on social media. And furthermore, if they did, they don't want to be cold prospected to there, right? So that's not really where the opportunity is. Uh, the opportunity is in two areas. It's one for prospects to, or for salespeople to understand the context of their prospects going in. So I love Mike's idea about sending the email out as a way to understand their expectations. But, you know, just to see how they're interacting in social media, what they're talking about these days, what they're following, what they're tweeting about, what they're blogging about, these are all potential inferences to actually what they're concerned about and can help you understand some of those unique perspectives before the sales process even begins. The other big opportunity here is salespeople, social media represents a medium for salespeople to position themselves as a thought leader amongst their prospects, right? So if you're a salesperson and you are cold calling 50 hours a month, there's nothing wrong with that. Cold calling is part of the job. But that would be my challenge to you is try for the next two months cold calling only 40 hours a month and use the 10 hours a month that you're saving to participate in social media. Find the LinkedIn groups where your prospects are conversing and add value to those conversations, right? Find the blogs that they follow, comment on those blogs. Find the folks in Twitter that they follow, retweet those people, follow those people as well and read up on what's going on. And after doing that for two months, ask yourself, were those 10 hours you spent better spent cold calling or participating in social media. And I think you'll be pleasantly surprised on your findings, and you may even increase that time. 
Thank you for the guidance, Mark. Mike Schultz or Gord Smith, who wants to comment, agree, disagree with Mark? Anybody? Yeah, I'll, I'll chime in on a few with a few comments. I, th- I think Go it's ahead. incumbent on every salesperson to um, be respectful that they have their own personal brand, and often that brand is portrayed in some of their own social media, LinkedIn, et cetera, and that it's very rare uh, if I go out to see a prospect that they haven't been on my LinkedIn profile and had a chance to look, and and that's where the, you know, the start of the trust. You know, who is this person? What experience do they have? Do they have they worked with clients like me? Those types of things. I think that's that's an element. I think the second piece is that through those conversations um, that Mark was alluding to, um, the seller gets deep knowledge of the buyer and it's way above and beyond kind of personas and things that marketing create. If they fundamentally, if they're in those LinkedIn groups, if they're on Twitter, if they're following them in their associations, et cetera, they understand the issues. And when they do connect with the buyer, I think the effectiveness of that interaction will rise dramatically because they know who it is they're talking to. Thank you, Gord. Mike Schultz, any comments? So I gave a, a, a training program on selling with LinkedIn for a major healthcare company, and I got the coolest introduction. Uh, I'd never been introduced like this. I had no idea he was going to do it. And he said, you know, uh, I can tell you all about Mike, his background, the books he wrote, um, the company, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I'll give anyone $20 if they can answer some questions about Mike uh, that I know the answers to. And so everyone said, $20. And he said, so I could tell you where Mike went to school, but where does he teach college right now? And nobody knew the answer. And where did Mike go to high school? Nobody knew the answer. What lake does Mike live on? Well, nobody knew the answer. And he said, why was Mike the keynote speaker at the American Heart Association's biggest annual gala dinner with 700 people in attendance, oh, just a few months ago? And nobody knew the answer. And he said, I learned all of this stuff spending 15 minutes investigating Mike on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Now, who uses this in the same way to go learn about the people they're going to meet before they meet with them? And there were an anemic couple of hands coming up. And, they, and he said, this is why we brought Mike in today, because there's power at your fingertips available very much for free uh, to be able to succeed better and understand more about your buyers. But I think, as a whole, we're not using it, and we should. And he went on to tell a story about how one of the sellers actually did use it, uh, and it was pretty amazing. But the whole idea is, is that it's right here. It's right in front of us. And one last point about you know, social media, but especially LinkedIn, a lot of the game is about LinkedIn, is that 30 years ago, uh, to Mark's point, everything was about cold calling and maybe some sales mm-hmm. letters. And 15 years ago, there were two ways to communicate. There was the telephone, and there was email. But literally, just in the last several years, social media has blossomed as another way that people communicate with each other. And so if our jobs as sellers is to be able to communicate, educate, teach, and connect the dots between things that we have to offer and the value that they can bring to a buyer, then we might as well use the three core communication media that, uh, that, that, that buyers and sellers actually use today. And the new one, the new one is uh, social media and especially LinkedIn. Thank you very much. I'm going to go back to Mark Roberts and Mark. I'd like you to tell us a little story about how your salespeople at HubSpot are trained in creating a website, developing a blog, 
putting together a social following, looking at Google, running a marketing promotion campaign. Is this for every salesperson? Do they ever balk or they come in knowing they're going to have to go through this training? And how effective is it, Mark? Very effective. They never balk. I'm not sure. I guess we do talk about it in the interview process, but I think they want that level of training. And mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a cool thing, too. I think if we were uh, assembling routers, they might balk a little bit. But to you know, go out and build a website, and we, we let them do it on whatever they want, their favorite sports team, like restaurants, um, something with their kids. It, it doesn't have to be necessarily work-related. But I think the underlying point here is it ties together a lot of the, the things that are being discussed today is to be insightful with your prospects, to tell the great stories, to educate them, to participate in blogs and LinkedIn and build up trust and value in that way. These are salespeople today need to be way beyond memorizing the, the price you know, book and understanding the sales deck. You know, they, they need to actually be consultants and trusted advisors to their prospects. In our opinion, the best way to do that is to, during training, let them feel what it's like to be a marketer who we're selling to. Feel like what, what it's like to be a, a marketer every single day. How hard is it to get a site to rank in Google? How hard is it to write a blog? How hard is it to generate a social media following, to organize an email campaign and do a lead nurturing campaign? We want them to feel that pain and feel the success around it before they first talk to their first marketer so they can be a better trusted advisor. And that's worked quite well for us. Thank you very much. I have a question for all three panelists. And we have, oh, about 12 minutes left to the show, and I'm going to save two minutes apiece for each of you to give me your predictions at the end. So we have a couple more minutes for some discussion. My question, do, do the successful salespeople today in B2B cut across all, uh, let's say, cut across all generations? Are we seeing an influx of millennials, Gen Yers? Are we still seeing some old timers? I shouldn't even say that. Baby boomers who want to stick around and learn the new method of selling. What do you observe and what do you think is going to change? This is not the prediction segment yet, but what do you think is going to change in terms of people coming in and really be gung-ho about this new type of selling? Why don't you start, Mike Schultz? Well, I think that you know, I'm, I'm not a young guy like, uh, like Mark and Gord, so I'll, I'll speak for us old timers. Uh, I think that that you know, it doesn't matter how old you are, uh, you can sell. Because, again, whether you're 22 or whether you're 65, if you ask yourself, how do buyers like to make decisions? And what can I do to facilitate helping them make those decisions and to appreciate after I actually sell to them for them to say, I believe this was one of the most productive and professional buying processes I've been through, because of how I was treated by you and how you interacted with me as a seller, so I'll certainly want to buy more from you. It doesn't matter how old you are to go ahead and ask those questions. You can, you know, you can do that. Now, you might find a 25-year-old buyer who doesn't like to um, communicate much or be contacted by email. They like to talk mm-hmm. on the phone. And you might find someone that's 55 years old that doesn't want to talk on the phone but prefers to communicate by email or by social media. Or maybe you can Snapchat each other. It doesn't matter. The whole idea is that if you can understand the buyers and you understand how they, how they make decisions and how they like to communicate, then you can you know, adjust whatever it is that, that you would you know, naturally do to instead be more helpful to them. So you know, as the person who, you know, a, a big part of my job is to research what's actually happening in selling, 
you know, I haven't found that much of a generational effect. Actually, the 28-year-olds, they can't sell at all. So if you're 28, you might as well retire. But actually, you can ah. wait a year. If you're 29, you'll be able to sell. It, 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 we're not finding much generationally in terms of seller success. It's, it's more of a mindset, and certainly there's a massive amount of change how people like to consume information. But, you know, the sellers of different ages are, you know, at least for what I can see, you know, doing fine. Thank you very much. Gord Smith, thoughts on this? Yeah, I don't think it's generational at all. I think that okay. the key factor in terms of these next generation of sellers is really their willingness to be self-directed and self-educated, that they just will take the time to learn everything they possibly can about buyers, about how to sell, and they, they stay on that journey and they get better and better over time because they're so committed to learning. Um, I had the opportunity last year to present at our uh, sale, international sales kickoff, and I presented some material around prospecting and how to do effectively and what works and what doesn't work. And after I finished my presentation, one gentleman, uh, John, uh, jumped out of his seat and said, I want to have dinner with you tonight at the, the team dinner. Can you sit beside me, please? Mm-hmm. And I, I had never met the guy before. And uh, I went through kind of in detail some of the stuff from my presentation. And then later the next day, I asked the global sales officer, hey, I had a great dinner with John. He said, yeah, John is our absolutely top performer, the best of the best in the company. And he's, uh, he's 60 years old. And, uh, mm-hmm. But he just has that desire to learn. And he just when he sees something, he just goes after it. I like that. I like that energy. And thank you. Uh, I, I guess my question was provocative because we're getting some good answers. Mark Robert's thoughts about generations entering and in the sales force. What do you see? Sure. I mean, I can look at it from the perspective of our sales team. You know, we have all ages, all experience levels represented at the organization. And in all of those levels, uh, a decent amount succeed and some fail. Um, I will tell you that just from our perspective, um, I, have, I, have, I do run sort of regression analyses on various characteristics of salespeople to see which predicts success so we can hire better. And I will say that in our context, less experience in selling correlates with more success at HubSpot, right? So I'll make that statement. Um, but I'll also make a statement that as I've worked with other organizations, I do believe that um, each of these nuances as to who's ideal for sales and you, more experience, less experience, older, younger, experience in your industry, not experience in your industry, whatever their unique buying process, your sales processes is, um, is all correlated to your business and your buyer. So just because we found statistically that less experience works for us, I don't think that's necessarily going to be the finding in, in other companies. I've had plenty of rock stars, number one out of 800 salespeople, come over here and join HubSpot and not do exceptionally well. And I've had plenty of people who actually got fired from their last job that came in here and became a top performer. So from my standpoint, I believe that the ideal salesperson for your business is extraordinarily unique to your buying context. Thank you. Great perspective. Guess what? We're going to circle back to Mike Schultz. Mike, we have six minutes left till the end of the show, and I'm going to take one minute or 30 seconds for my closing. So I'm going to give each of you 90 seconds for predictions. Mike, take a look at the crystal ball. I know you polished it off before the show. Can you predict what our conversation would be like, what would be different in the year 2020, or what do you see in the future? What time frame? Go ahead, 90 seconds, Mike Schultz. Sure. So probably about 10 years ago, uh, I started seeing predictions that maybe the job of seller was going to go away because everyone could find out everything on the internet so we didn't need the middleman to to uh take orders 
Now, around that time, according to the U.S. Census data, about one in nine people worked in a sales role. And if we look at the most recent data in the last couple of years, guess what? One in nine people work in sales roles. So mm. selling and sales and those roles, they are not going away. Uh, and just because buyers have more information doesn't necessarily mean they have more insight or it doesn't necessarily mean that they're making better decisions. It's hard to sort through everything and decide what should I do, much to Mark's point, not just, you know, hey, I can read a white paper and say I'm going to buy this. No, what should I do here? And why should I do it here? And how should I do it here differently than how other people do it? So the sellers that survive, I don't think they're going to be taking orders. I literally think they're going to be change agents. They're going to be peers of business leaders. They're going to inspire them with ideas that the, the business leaders didn't necessarily know before speaking with them. And they're also going to be guided by these sellers, like, like Sherpas taking them the right way up the mountain for them. So mm-hmm. uh, even the sellers that had success in the past, as we know, it's actually changing how you do this. So if you want to keep having success, you, know, you, you do well to change and to remember that the road to success is always under repair. And to start building and start doing and start learning the things that you need to do now so you can be successful in the new world of buying and selling. Thank you very much. Very eloquent, Mike. Gord Smith, 90 seconds, predictions, go. Yeah, I think um, if you look at 2020, I think that, you know, sales and marketing has historically been kind of siloed functions. And I think that those two organizations are going to morph into something different, uh, a single structure. Um, I agree that there is a new breed of salesperson that with different skills that's required moving forward. They need to have content. They need to have business acumen. They need to be at the C-suite and be credible. And and I don't think that there's a lot of that type of capability. So I see, um, you know, a small percentage of our sellers now and increasingly a a bigger percentage will be able to demonstrate competence in those areas. Uh, I think clients are, are going to continue to do research. It won't, it won't take away from the need for a seller, but it needs, has to be that new kind of seller. But if, if, if you think that 60% of the buying journey is, happens online through online research, I think that's going to lengthen. I think clients are going to be very comfortable getting even farther in the buying journey without having engaging sales. But when they do engage, that seller better be, have all the right skills or it'll be a short conversation. Um, I could see um, marketing taking on more and more sales responsibility and, you know, less, less junior sellers in organizations because they need to have the new skill sets, but having um, marketing, uh, having a bigger role in the overall sales process and working very closely with these elite sellers that have these uh, higher-end skills, higher-end capabilities. And I think it will end up being one structure you know, there'll be, you know, you're starting to see it, you know, chief revenue officer, those types of things, as opposed to a siloed function, sales and marketing. Thank you, Gord. I have to cap that. I need to have one minute for Mark Robert's Your predictions, Mark? Go ahead. Mark, really are you with us? by the, uh, the yeah. consumerization of software trend that's really going on, how that's going to impact sales. So, I mean, I think as buyers, we have come to grow into this uh, this desire for lack of friction with like companies like Uber and uh, Pandora and how we listen to, to music and even OpenTable and how we get a, 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 you know, a reservation for a restaurant. And now in the B2B world with like Dropbox and Evernote and Atlassian and Xero, I think CIOs look across their organizations today and they can't stop the downloading of, of niche tools at the front line is actually grabbing on their own and using for free and adopting before they even know it's happening. 
And I think that trend is going to have a huge impact on sales, where there's a lot more focus on the incubation of adoption at the front line before you even call power. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of like how they can actually instigate that groundswell. And the sales pitch is more about, hey, listen, your people are already using this and love it. We just need to get you on the business version, as opposed to the traditional nuances of calling high with the elevator pitch, et cetera. So I'm very intrigued about that trend in the early, early phases of evolving, how that's going to uh, change sales and marketing. Thank you very much. I want to thank our wonderful panel, all great speakers, thought leaders, interesting, interesting conversation. Mike Schultz at Rain Group, thank you. Gord Smith at Hitachi Solutions, thank you. Mark Roberge at HubSpot, it was a pleasure to speak with the three of you. I have to do a shout-out to Jeannie Trin at Ariba, who is the sponsor of this series, Business Innovation with Game Changers Radio. And a shout-out also to Jeannie and to Gail Daikoku for tweeting at hashtag SAP Radio, capturing some of the words of wisdom of our panel. Shout-out also and thank you to Brad and the Business Channel team. Uh, I'll be back tomorrow. We have a special sneak preview on Coffee Break with Game Changers tomorrow. We're going to swap out Coffee Break and do a sneak preview of our newest series, Meet the Visionary Game Changers. That will be 11 a.m. Eastern, so come and listen. You don't want to miss this one. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and here is my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Business Innovation with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run business is run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Tuesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 p.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.